At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? It's good to see you all this morning. It's good to be with you. Um, I'd like to pray to start our time here. So if you would, just bow your heads and your hearts with me. Father in heaven, you are indeed holy. There was no one like you. Not on earth, not in heaven, not in all the cosmos, Father. You are God and God alone. Our prayer this morning, Father, is to change. Not out of despair, but out of love for you and the persons that we long to become. We long to be persons conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Teach us. Mold us. Convict us, Father. Continue the work that you've started in us by the blood of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to start with a story that I read recently in a message from another pastor. And the story goes like this. Many years ago in England, there were two brothers, and they were convicted of stealing sheep. The punishment in those days required that both of the brothers be branded across their forehead with the letters ST, ST standing for sheep thief. One of the brothers couldn't bear the punishment. The weight of the shame was just too much, so he fled to a foreign country where he eventually died full of bitterness over what had happened. And he was buried later on in a forgotten grave. The other brother chose to stay, not to run as his brother did. He said, I can't get away from what I've done. I am guilty of stealing sheep. But I will stay and make the best of this situation. I will change my ways. I will do what is right, and I will make it my aim to gain the respect of others and have integrity. Well, many years passed, and his reputation did in fact change. He became known for integrity. He gained the respect of others. He was thought of as honest and kind. Then one day a person came to visit the town and this visitor saw the man out and about in the town and he was puzzled about what all this meant. He saw the letters ST now scarred on his forehead and was confused. And so in his confusion, he asked one of the locals, what did all this mean? How do, how do I understand this? After thinking for a while, the local said, you know, it happened so long ago, I can't remember all the details. But I really think the letters are an abbreviation for the word saint. What are you known for? You know, recently, I took my oldest son, Micah, to go visit Calvin University. Yes, we're in that stage of life now where we are visiting colleges and figuring out what that next stage of his life is going to be like and where it will take place. But the reason why I mention it is because of the mission statement that Calvin University has. I want to read it for you. It says, think deeply, act justly, live wholeheartedly as Christ's agents of renewal in the world. See, that's what you and I are called to be, 
Christ's agents of renewal in the world. Elsewhere, Paul actually calls us ambassadors. But everywhere we turn, culture gives, it, gives us what it thinks people should be known for. Your past failures or your current success. Maybe your work or your money is what you're hearing from culture. Perhaps even your appearance. All of us are hearing that we should be known for our sexuality or our gender. See, culture has even gone so far as to question what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. But culture isn't merely asking these questions. It's giving its own answers as well. But in the quest to undo unhelpful stereotypes or caricatures, humanity has shown itself to desire autonomy more than truth. Right? It's our will rather than God's will. And what we're left with is a world that sees no difference, no uniqueness between men and women. Everyone is interchangeable. This has only brought more confusion and more bondage. And so I'll just ask you, are there any differences between boys and girls, between men and women? And if we agree then that there are differences, then where do those come from? And who decides that? See, I understand that everybody has passionate answers to those questions because they're all deeply personal. But what we need to remember is that God has already given an answer on men and women. And we know that in the church, Christian men and women should be known for their gospel-centered behavior. That's what we should be all about. The gospel is the thing that should be branded on our minds and our hearts. It should be dripping off of our words as we speak them. Some might argue that the stakes are high in our modern time. I think they've always been high in how we conduct ourselves as Christian men and women. And even in saying that, I'm reminded of the words from Jesus as he ascended into heaven shortly before that happened, after his resurrection in Acts 1.8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And yet too often in the church, we are known more for our political views. Maybe even your view on the economy or what policies are good and bring about personal wealth, what policies are bad and so on and so forth, or even our jobs, all of that more than Christ-like character. See, our lives should be set apart from the culture around us. I'm not advocating for a hidden holiness, something we keep under wraps, something we hunker down and not show anyone. What I am advocating for, and what Scripture advocates for, is a visible holiness that points to Jesus while we live and work and be involved in this world. It's an incarnational holiness that we are called to. And over the past several weeks, we've been going through the book of 1 Timothy in a series that we've entitled Church, Why Bother? We've been processing and mulling over the words that the Apostle Paul writes to his disciple Timothy, who at this time is now a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. And Paul has charged Timothy to emphasize sound doctrine, to hold fast and hold true to the gospel. And as we saw last week, to pray earnestly for all people everywhere. Timothy's first letter is set up as a contrast 
to the false teaching that was threatening the church, that was threatening the truth of the gospel that had made its way into the church. And Paul already has emphasized the gospel on two occasions. I hope you saw that, but if you didn't, it was in, the first time was in first, uh, the first chapter, verses 12 to 16. And the second was last week in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. So the gospel is what's driving Paul's words here. So grab your Bibles. Let's pick up Paul's instructions to Timothy. And we'll be reading in chapter 2, starting in verse 8. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable peril, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, in our text, Paul's emphasis is on the behavior of men and women who profess faith in Christ. And this is one of those scriptures where many have contested the meaning of words here. Not so much in their definitions, but in how we apply them in the church. How do we live these out? What does it look like to live out these words faithfully? And the challenge for us this, this morning is to see these words through the lens of the person and the work of Jesus Christ and their original context. Often our responses to these verses and many others are clouded, clouded by our presuppositions. None of us come to this text with per perfect objectivity. None of us come to this text or any other with perfect clarity, knowing everything that we need to know. And so humility must, it must be our posture in approaching God's word. And even in saying that, I'm reminded of the reality that David writes in Psalm 19. He says this, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And so with that as our mind and, and humility as our posture, let's look where Paul begins. Paul begins with instructions that men should be known for their spiritual passion. Men should be known for their spiritual passion. Look back in verse 8 with me. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul is continuing his thought. He's developing more of his thought from verses 1 through 7 that we saw last week. Remember, the church should be known for peaceful and prayerful, godly, quiet lives. And now Paul fleshes that out by turning to key dispositions in men and women. While verse 8 begins with, I desire, perhaps even I want, depending on the translation you read from, this is not Paul's opinion. So the English there is a little bit misleading. He's not giving you what he thinks is best. 
He's actually giving Timothy a specific description for men who profess faith in Christ. And he's doing it by pointing out an area of weakness that affects the prayers of men. Anger. And what Paul has in view here is actually much deeper than anger. It's, it's wrath. Wrath is really the connotation of the original word here. And wrath actually gives us a more vivid picture of the men in Ephesus. They were known for their anger and their aggression and the eventual fighting that would just pour out of them and the conflict that would result. It's all about me, my perspective. You need to see what I'm saying. You need to understand it my way. It led to all kinds of things. Paul says endless speculation, myths, and genealogies. This was causing tremendous division. False doctrine was being spread in the church. Instead, Paul tells Timothy that men in the church, men that are in Christ Jesus, should be about holy passion, not unholy passion. And this is why he adds that men that should pray should lift holy hands. Right? Hands lifted high reveal a heart that appeals to God for his wisdom. It values others as equal. It desires to see others as the way God sees them. It's symbolic of right relationship with God. Men, do you see what Paul's getting at? He's pointing to the outward sign for what's happening in here, the inward reality. He's picking out the outward things that everyone can see to point out the condition of the heart. This is exactly what Jesus does in Matthew 12, 34, when he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But sadly, centuries later, not much has changed. We have too many examples of angry men. And many of us men have bought into the lie that anger and aggression and fighting and conflict is somehow macho. It's somehow manly. It's somehow an authentic representation of manhood. It's a lie. And if you're a man that agrees with that, let me rebuke you now. It's not what Jesus was about, nor should we be about that. The truth of the reality of this is heard in Robert Yarbrough's words. Listen to this, so powerful. Men, ancient and modern, often relish disagreement. They love to be right and will go to great lengths to vindicate themselves and disparage real or even perceived foes. I think the simple truth is, guys, that our anger has conditioned us towards disunity. It's conditioned us to violence, exploiting others for personal gain. In particular, exploitation of women. See, families and marriages and churches lay in the wake of many angry men. And it's tragic. Instead, to pray the way that Paul is describing to Timothy is to look outside of ourselves. It's to rid ourselves of self-importance. It's to admit that we don't have it figured out. God, we, we need your wisdom. We're nothing without you. It's a challenge to not be so me-centered. And Paul addresses men first because God has charged us with the responsibility to lead our families, to lead the church. So it's a good time to ask once again, men, what are you known for? What is it people say that you're known for? 
Let me challenge you to take Paul's Holy Spirit-led directive. Be known for your spiritual passion. Be known to desire Jesus Christ and the good of others over yourself. Next, Paul says, women should be known for their gospel substance. Women should be known for their gospel substance. Look back at verse 9 with me. Paul writes, likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn with quietness, or quietly, excuse me, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So as Paul shifts to women now, he, he says, likewise. So there's no new thought pattern for, for Paul. He's continuing in the same train of thought. But I want to know if you notice something. Do you notice Paul's focus on the fruit of one's life? Remember for the men, I just said that Paul called out the internal reality of anger in the heart that leads to the external reality of fighting and conflict. Now for women, he calls out the external reality of appearance that reveals the internal reality of an unhealthy concern with bodily appearance. And he gives his instruction to women in three parts. Look at them again. He says, use discretion and aim for modesty. Don't use wealth to show an elaborate appearance. Adorn yourselves with good deeds. So why all of the focus on clothing and appearance? Why the strictness here? Is this a ban altogether on nice things, on nice clothes and nice jewelry? Well, no. A little context is helpful here. Ephesus was a pagan city. It was known for demonic activity tremendously. And prominent in Ephesian culture was cult worship that centered around the temple of Diana. But it wasn't just cult, cult worship that happened there. It was a center for business and trade and politics and religion. So you can imagine the kind of cross-section of culture that would frequent this place, the kinds of people that would be there. And the cult was led primarily by women, many of whom were employed as prostitutes. And they dressed themselves in a way, in an elaborate show of wealth to attract attention for personal gain, to increase their own influence among other people, to manipulate and exploit leadership, including the leadership of men. And so with this as the context in which the church is present, Paul instructs women to adorn themselves with clothing and hairstyles and jewelry that in their culture... It's inexpensive. It's modest. Not suggestive at all. He says, don't embrace the values of the culture. Timothy, instruct them to be modest. Aim for godliness. And embrace the beauty of doing good for others. So ladies, what are you known for? What is the one thing that when people hear your name, they would say in response. How then do women become known for their gospel substance? Well, Paul gives the answer in verse 11. Let her learn. 
Let her learn. He tragically have read this verse and the next with an overly authoritarian tone. As if Paul's saying, shut up and sit down, and there's this harshness in it. See, it's a tone that's done much damage for platonic relationships between men and women. It's a tone that's wreaked havoc in marriages. It's a tone that's pushed women down and belittled them. This letter is written in a pastoral tone. A tone that cares for the discipleship of women just as much as that for men. See, Paul's telling Timothy here to provide a space in worship where women can learn and they can do so in peace. Because in the culture, women were largely dismissed in this time. Their education was an afterthought, if a thought at all. Women were treated as a commodity. Sadly, some places not too much different today. But in Ephesus, education of women wasn't a priority. It wasn't considered. And so Paul's not saying that women should be silenced in the church. But in fact, he's charging Timothy and making him responsible for each woman's worshipful learning. Give them a space to learn, Timothy. They are a disciple just like you are. See, in verse 12, Paul brings clarity to verse 11. He anticipates after that he affirms and empowers women to learn because they weren't in the culture, not outside the Christian faith. He, is, he assumes what question will come next. And you can hear it through the cynical hearts and even sinful hearts. Well, if women were afforded the chance to learn now and they weren't before, what's next? Can they teach? Can they do this? Can they do that? And Paul answers it clearly. He says a woman is not permitted to teach or exercise authority over a man. And none of us can argue the plain language in this text. It's clear. It doesn't need much explanation. And as we're going to see next week, these two things are the very two things that distinguish an elder from a deacon. But that's next week, so I want to leave it there. And Pastor John Piper's words are really helpful for us here, so I want to give them to you as a gift. He says, not all teaching and not all authority are restricted from women in this verse. It's authority over men. There's a kind of authoritative teaching over men that is referred to here. See, Paul is not restricting women for the sake of restricting them. Again, it's about a prioritizing their discipleship, giving them a space to learn because they had no space. But look again where Paul goes next as his reason. Look at verses 13 and 14. He points to God's design in creation. Look at verse 13. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. See, in one simple sentence, Paul recalls everything of the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. And then he also recalls the fall in Genesis 3. See, he sees them in a larger light. Paul sees Adam and Eve in a larger light than merely the first woman and the first man. He even sees them in a larger light than the first married couple. See, together they would represent the apex of God's creation. Let me say that again. Together, Adam and Eve represent the apex of God's creation. Together, they would carry out God's will on the earth. Together, they would represent God's heart in all of creation. And yet, together, they sinned. 
But in Eden, Eve took the lead. And while that might cause some tension to rise in us, I'll point out this. Original sin is not credited to Adam, or Eve, excuse me. It's actually put on Adam in Romans 5. Sin came in the world through one man, Paul writes. See, there's something deeper in the creation order that still applies today. Man and woman, men and women are equal in worth, but they're not identical or interchangeable. Not identical or interchangeable in what God expects of them to their created identity. See, this is not about gifting. This is not about inferiority or something else. Paul affirms women as teachers in his other letters. This is about assembly of the church, what we're doing right now. See, the problem is not God's will. The problem is not God's plan, his design. The problem is us. The problem is the deceitfulness of sin in our hearts that we bring to these, this passage and many others. Our text actually closes with a thought that flows out of Paul's acknowledgement of Adam and Eve's sin. It's really puzzling, and it's widely acknowledged as one of the most confusing in all the New Testament. Look back at verse 15. Paul writes, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. See, despite the confusion around this verse, I hope you notice the tone of encouragement. See, Paul hasn't changed his mind on where salvation comes from. He's not confused about who Jesus is and what he's done. So what could he possibly mean here? What's going on? Well, another helpful explanation from Pastor John Piper. He looks at other places that Paul uses this language called, this language saved through. A very good tip if you're reading your Bible is look elsewhere when you're confused of where that author uses the same language. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 3.15, which reads this, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And what that verse is communicating is that sometime in the ministry of God's word and the work of ministry, we don't always do it well. We don't do it effectively. We don't do it with a great heart because we're fallen human beings. And yet, how many are glad that we are not saved by our works? We're saved by faith in Christ. And so he's saying that you will be saved even though your work will be burned up, it won't last. You will be saved through that trial. And so if we bring these two things together, this is how we might be able to understand what Paul's saying in verse 15. After Adam and Eve sinned, part of the curse that was put on Eve, if you remember, is that God would multiply her pain in childbearing. That's Genesis 3.16. And here Paul is saying that women will be saved through that pain, not by it. If they persevere in faith and all the fruits that come with it, love and holiness with self-control. So women of faith... Take joy that the curse of sin pronounced so long ago cannot keep you from salvation if your faith is in Christ. Church, men and women are equally responsible for the integrity of God's people in worship. 
We are equally called to that responsibility, equally called to a life of holiness, a calling, mind you, that is expressed uniquely to each of our God-given identity. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.